Esther chapter 2. We're going through this book on Wednesday nights. A book which shows us God's providence. Spiritual things are not mentioned. God is never mentioned. And we'll discover how God is still at work behind the scenes, even though He seems hidden. We began chapter 2 last week, and as we come to this chapter again, we know Vashti has been deposed in the previous. And here in verse 1, Ahasuerus remembered Vashti. He had made a drunken decree that she could never appear before him again. And in Persia, once a decree was issued, it could never be changed, not even by the king. Now that time has passed, things look different. And that's often the case when we make major decisions hastily and with bad advice. Things usually look different in the morning. What he did in haste while he was not in a right mind has now become a source of deep regret in his life. I have suggested there's a three to four year gap between chapter one and chapter two. And this would have been after the king's failed attempt to conquer Greece. But I also mentioned last week there may have only been a short period of time between the two chapters. However, had I just taken verse 16 into account here of chapter 2, then it is clear that some four years have indeed passed. Verse 16 states, Esther was chosen as queen in the tenth month of the seventh year of the king's reign, and the party in chapter 1 took place in the third year of his reign. So... There is more to this verse than meets the eye, and the more I study this, I've said, the more I'm convinced that Ahasuerus is likely the same as Xerxes in secular history. Um, So sometimes we just casually read the Bible, right? But there's more there if we would just pause and, and dig in. So I apologize for that oversight. You deserve better. That debate aside... Though the king had great riches and great status, he has no peace or joy at home. No matter how much of this world's treasures you may possess and no matter how high of a level you may have attained in this world, if you don't have peace at home, you're going to have a lack of joy in your life. And the king, he's now down and out. He's bummed out. He's despondent. He can't have Vashti back even if he wanted. The king's servants, they can see that Ahasuerus needs to get his mind off of Vashti. So they come up with a plan. Essentially, their plan is let's have a gigantic beauty contest, such as the world has never known. Fair young virgins from throughout the empire are going to be brought to the palace in Shushan, and the king will decide who the next queen will be. And we saw at the end of verse 4 last week, the king agrees to this plan. Out of 127 provinces, can you imagine how many ladies were brought in? probably well into the hundreds. And though this contest, if you will, is going to be held in a pagan land, we're going to see God's providence still at work. With that, we'll pick up where we left off by reading verses 5 through 20. Tonight's going to be boring. It's just going to be a plain old Bible study tonight. Amen? I give you permission to sleep without repercussion. With that, let's begin in verse 5. Now, in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Now, I believe it's pronounced Mordecai. 
when you look. If you have a Bible that breaks down the spelling, you may have a, uh, an I with a straight line above it. Does anybody have that? Yeah. Some of you have those kind of Bibles, that, how to pronounce it. It would actually be Mordecai. For the comfort of the saints, I may say Mordecai, just so you don't get, you know, cantankerous with me. And I may say Mordecai, so just bear with me, okay? Whew. What verse did I stop reading in? <laughs> wow, we made it far, didn't we? Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together in Shushan the palace to the custody of, of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for her purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished. Guys, if it takes your wife three hours to get ready for church, that's way, that's way shorter than twelve months. Amen. For so were the days of their purification accomplished to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her, to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women, to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. You know what? Let's end there, because we're not even going to get past verse 7. All right. Sorry about that. In verses 5 and 6, we see a man named Mordecai who comes suddenly on the scene and into this account. Now, who is this man? And how old is he? And... How do we read his genealogy that's listed here? How is that to be understood? Well, we're told plainly that Mordecai is a Jew. And in particular, he is a Benjamite. And I just want to mention right here that not all the children of Israel are Jews biblically. Though that's often how the term Jew is used. For example, people often say Abraham is the father of the Jews. No, the Bible says Abraham was a Hebrew. 
His grandson Jacob became Israel. His offspring became the children of Israel. One of Jacob's sons was named Judah. And Judah's offspring became known as the tribe of Judah. Then when the kingdom was split into two houses, there were ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The two tribes to the the south were known as the house of Judah. The house of Judah was located in the area known as Judea. And the first time that the term Jews shows up in the Bible isn't until 2 Kings 16.6, where it is used in direct relation to those of Judea. And the first time that the word Jew shows up in the Bible, singular, is here in Esther 2.5. But why is Mordecai called a Jew when it says he was a Benjamite? It's because the two southern tribes which made up the house of Judah became known collectively as Judah or Jews. I know that may sound trivial to you, but I'll promise you if you study the Word of God and you keep those distinctions that the Bible makes in your studies, it will go a long way. It will help you out. And I just want to tell you, there's a lot of terms in the Bible that are used differently than how God used them. Tribulation and wrath. Day of the Lord, day of Christ. A lot of these are used differently by people, but we got to use them as the Bible uses them if we want to rightly divide the Word of God. So here's, here's uh, Mordecai. He's called a Jew, being of the tribe of Benjamin. This is important because it's letting us know that he was living in exile as a result of the Babylonian captivity, being carried away of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told that in verse 6. In other words, what, what we learn here is that this man is out of place. Now, I mentioned this when I introduced this book, but so are all the Jews that are living in exile. They are out of place. When Cyrus took over, the king of Persia defeated the Babylonians. He issued the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And he said they were free to return to the land. Out of all that lived in exile, only fifty to 60,000 returned. All the rest are choosing to stay in Persia, in a, in a pagan culture, in a pagan land, and I would make the argument, outside of God's will. But remember what we said, those who will refuse God's will will be led by God's providence. And so here's a man, he's out of place. He's not only out of place where he's living, but he's also in some sort of position here in Persia. In verse 21, it'll let you know that he was sitting in the king's gate. So he has some sort of position here. Um, Instead of living in Judea, he's living in Shushan. You may hear it called Susa in secular language. But remember that uh, he's not where he's supposed to be. The rest are just staying right where they're at. And that's the problem. We get accustomed to living in the world once you go to it. And we we put down roots. We open up shop. The next thing you know, 20 years of our lives have passed and we wondered, what did we do for God? Well, we got comfortable in in our exile and we stayed right where we were at. Now, there is a Mordecai who's mentioned in Esther, or excuse me, who is mentioned in Ezra 2.2 and in Nehemiah 7.7 who did return to the land. Some hold the opinion that that Mordecai is the same as this one mentioned in Esther. Some believe that he did return to the land, but once the building of the temple ceased, that he returned back to Persia. But as you know, in the Bible, there are a lot of names that are the same. And the same name doesn't mean the same person. We have like 1,700 mics in this church. (laughs) 
But because a name doesn't necessarily mean it's the same person, that's what complicates verse number five. It's, is the genealogy here only going four generations back? Or is it mentioning those who are most prominent in his lineage? And therefore, it actually goes back much further. Either the Kish mentioned here was his great-grandfather and the one who would have been alive when the Babylonians came in and invaded and took over and took them captive. Or Kish here is the same as the father of Saul, who was the first king over Israel. But again, the same name doesn't mean the same person. However, I bring this up because it would be very interesting if Kish is the same as the father of King Saul because it opens the door for the Shimei that's listed here in verse 5 to be the same Shimei who is the son of Gera, who is the one who shows up cursing David as David's fleeing when Absalom's attempting a coup of the king. And that's interesting because 2 Samuel 16 verses 5 and 6 say, And when King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came, and cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Well, Abishai, the son of Zariah, one of David's men, he says, hey, King, let me go over there and take his head off. I love Samuel, man. If you got boys, put them in Samuel. There's so much cool stuff in there. Abishai, he's like, hey, let me go take this guy's head off. He's a dead dog. Well, David says, what am I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? But, but he says, let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. And it's just interesting because had this been the same... Shimei, mentioned here in verse 5, had David had him killed, Mordecai would have never been born. And again, that could be more of God's providence. And it was Mordecai who will play a huge role here in Esther in keeping the tribe of Judah alive. The same tribe that God will use to bring in the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's going to sit upon the throne of David. And so it's a fascinating thought, but it can't be proven. Now, verse 6 says... Mordecai had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. As of now, I don't believe this means that Mordecai himself was the one who was carried away during the invasion and the captivity, but that he was said to be carried away being in the loins of his fathers. Just as Hebrews chapter 7 teaches that Levi received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And I believe that's the thought here in Esther chapter 2 and verse 5, that, or excuse me, verse 6, that it is actually just saying he was carried away being in the loins of his father. And I make that case because had Mordecai been taken a captive when the Babylonians invaded, then at this point, by the time Ahasuerus takes over, Mordecai would be well into his hundreds. I mean, this, this would be like an old man among men. And, uh, you know, like when the Bible says that, I can't remember who it is now, but God says, you're aged and you're aged among men. You know what I'm saying? God just had a way of saying, you're not only old, you're old. And, and that would have been... More, okay. Um, I'm trying my best. It's going to just be one of those lessons, you see. And anyway, so I believe he was born 
while either in the captivity or in the exile period. And because he would have been, had he been the one carried away himself literally, then it wouldn't really fit the narrative here because Esther and Mordecai are cousins. And the requirement for a wife was a fair young virgin. And this would have put Esther at such an old age that I don't think she would have been considered as one to be queen at that point. And so I believe that it's just telling us that his family was carried away captive. And we know Mordecai was older than Esther, but he wasn't that much older. All right, I don't know how many cousins you have that are hundred and something years older than you. And so um, we, we have no way of knowing for sure, but it's likely that Esther here is about 20 years of age. Some will have her even as a teenager, which would have been common in those days. And Mordecai was probably roughly twice her age, maybe a little bit more, is what most people suppose. Now, one last thought about Mordecai before we move on to Esther. We find in verse 11 that Mordecai is able to walk every day before the court of the women's house. So we know he had to be in some position. I mean, just random dudes can't walk by the court of the women. All right, And because it's the court of the women, and he's got such proximity to that area, some believe he was made a eunuch while in exile because the king wouldn't allow men to hang around his women that could defile them. And so that's just a thought, and again, we have no way of knowing. When are you going to tell us something we can use? I don't know, okay? With Mordecai I introduced, let's move on to verse 7, where we are introduced to Esther. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. And we'll say more next week, but what a guy Mordecai was, amen. Uh, but anyway, we'll save that for next time. We, we see that Esther was Mordecai's uncle's daughter and makes them cousins. And we see her name was first Hadassah. Many believe this was her Hebrew name. And that does seem to fit. And if you're looking for a beautiful name for a girl, Hadassah would be a good choice. We have one in our church. Now, it's unclear when her name was changed to Esther. Some think it was changed when she came to the court of the women. Some believe maybe when she was married. But if Hadassah is of Hebrew origin, then I would think her name would have to have been changed much earlier than this point because Mordecai's thing was always, you got to conceal who you are, your ethnicity. you got to conceal that. And so I, I personally believe that it was probably changed well before this point, maybe even back to when he began to raise her. But I did an internet search. And... I asked, when was Esther's name changed? And the first answer said, October 28, 2013. <laughs> that didn't sit right with me, so I figured out it was actually the date of the woman's blog that was writing on the subject. All right. Now, Hadassah is the feminine form of a word which means myrtle, as in a myrtle tree. And as you know, names in the Bible have very significant meaning. They speak of a person's character or their situation. 
Remember that Naomi said, call me no more Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Lord hath dealt very bitterly with me. And so names are very significant in the Bible. If you haven't been bored yet, just go ahead and get ready. The myrtle tree is part of the eucalyptus family of trees. And I say that because it, it has a very fragrant smell to it. It has a very pleasant aroma. Uh, so pleasant that they would use it to make wreaths for betrothal and wedding ceremonies uh, back then. It's also an attractive tree, and its leaves are green year-round. In the summer, it produces white flower blossoms, which many say resemble a star, and they're valued for their oil. It flourishes in adversity. It comes back after it's been chopped down, and it actually grows back fuller and more lush after it's been burned. They also flourish in the valleys where there's more water. In Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 8, there is the vision of the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, is what it says. In other words, the valley. In Zechariah 1.11, the myrtle tree is emblematic of peace and rest. The Bible says, And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 13, the myrtle tree is emblematic of the righteous. It says, Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And the comparison there is between the wicked and the righteous, the fir and the myrtle tree being the righteous. In Isaiah 41, when the poor and needy are seeking for water and God makes the desert a pool of water, the myrtle tree is represented as proof of God's blessing upon those who will seek for Him. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 5, there are some trees listed that can be used to build the booths to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, which they were reinstituting being back in the land, and one of those is the myrtle tree. And that was a, the Feast of the Tabernacles was showing how uh, it was a commemoration of how God had taken them out of Egypt, guided them through the wilderness, and met all their needs along the way. And in these descriptions of the myrtle tree, I said all that to say this, we see Hadassah. She was always pleasant to look upon. Her beauty was like the pure white blossoms. She was an aromatic fragrance to all around her. And like the oil from the myrtle tree, she had a valued spirit about her. At the end of, of Esther 2.15 here we read, And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all of them that looked upon her. But also like the myrtle trees, she had survived her share of adversity. We see in verse 7 that, her parents died. It was likely at a very young age. Some believe that her dad died after she was conceived and her mom died while giving birth. We don't know that, but that's just one of the traditions that are out there. And it would seem that she uh, lost her parents at an early age. She was poor. She was an orphan girl. She's down in the valley, if you will. She's been chopped down. She's gone through the fire, but she's come back stronger and fuller and, and, and more 
um, I don't know, lush sounds like such a stupid word for this, but she, she comes back better and more full as a result. And just as the myrtle tree pictures peace and safety and rest, so Hadassah is going to bring peace and safety and rest to her people in time in this book through her courage to stand before the king. And she'll picture righteousness in contrast to wicked Haman who is seeking to exterminate the Jews. She's going to be proof of God's blessing upon His people while they're dwelling in the wilderness of exile. And like the booths for the Feast of Tabernacles, she will deliver her people and God will meet all of their needs. And this people will one day usher in the Messiah who is the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. She becomes like Psalm 1-3, and He shall be planted like a tree by the rivers of water that bringeth forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. Hadassah and all that she represents is also a great picture of Christ and His saints. We are pleasant plants made comely through the comeliness of Christ, having been grafted into the vine. Our prayers are a sweet fragrance rising up to God. Our leaves don't wither. We flourish through periods of adversity and persecution. We're considered to be in the bottom by the world's standards. But we are shade to those who will find Christ standing in her midst, who alone can bring peace and safety and rest We have been given Christ's righteousness and we have the priceless oil of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Charles Spurgeon likened the myrtle tree that were in the bottom in Zechariah 1.8 to the church. And he wrote this, It describes the church of God as we find it now in the world. The church is compared to a myrtle grove flourishing in a valley. It is hidden, unobserved, secreted, courting no honor and attraction, no observation from the careless gazer. The church, like her head, has a glory, but it is concealed from carnal eyes. From the time of her breaking forth and all her splendor is not yet come. The idea of tranquil security is also suggested to us, for the myrtle grove in the valley is still and calm. While the storm sweeps over the mountain summits, tempests spin their force upon the craggy peaks of the Alps, but down yonder where flows the stream which maketh glad the city of our God, the myrtles flourish by the still waters, all unshaken by the impetuous wind. How great is the inward tranquility of God's church. Even when opposed and persecuted, she has a peace which the world gives not, and which therefore it cannot take away. The peace of God which passeth all understanding keeps the hearts and minds of God's people. Does not the metaphor forcibly picture the peaceful perpetual growth of the saints? The myrtle sheds not her leaves. She is always green. And the church in her worst time still hath a blessed uh, verdure of grace about her. Nay, she has sometimes exhibited most verdure when her winter has been sharpest. She has prospered most when her adversities have been most severe. Hence, the text hints at victory. The myrtle is the emblem of peace and a significant token of triumph. The brows of conquerors were bound with myrtle and with laurel. And is not the church ever victorious? Is not every Christian more than a conqueror through him that loved him? Living in peace, do not the saints fall asleep in the arms of victory. End quote. What a beautiful writing there. Um, so the, 
the idea of the myrtle tree representing the church there. And you can see from this name Hadassah, it only appears here. It's the only time it shows up in the Bible. But there are so many spiritual truths that we can glean from this girl's name. And I would imagine many of you in here can see yourself in Hadassah. You've gone through the fire of adversity. But you came through it stronger, fuller, more fragrant, fragrant than ever before because Christ walks among the myrtle trees. And I just want to encourage you tonight, if you're going through trials, let patience have her perfect work. And trust that God knows how to make all things beautiful in His time. God is a refiner, and you shall come forth as gold. You may even feel hidden at the bottom of a valley, but Christ, the water of life, is there with you. And if you'll allow Him to conform you, to prune you, and even put you through the fire, then you too will become shade one day to some weary traveler who's looking for peace and rest in this sin-torn world. And then you can point them to Christ who alone can clothe them in His righteousness if they'll simply accept His free gift of salvation. What a great thought here in Hadassah. That would be an appropriate place to end, and I'm sure you were sensing it, but I'm going to bum you out. We're going to move on and talk about Esther real quick. It's difficult to know the meaning of her name for sure, but there's two prevailing opinions. The first is that Esther means star. I mentioned earlier that the myrtle tree blossoms to many are said to resemble stars. And some suppose that Esther is really kind of a, a secret tieback to her Hebrew name of Hadassah. And God promised that the children of Israel would become as the number of the stars of heaven. Esther, a star, is going to be used to keep Judah alive. Now, some see Esther as having a more pagan meaning, referring to the star of Venus or the star of Ishtar, which was the goddess of fertility, love, and desire. The other thought, which is more intriguing to me, is that Esther means hidden, being derived from the root word sitar. In verses 10 and 12, we see that Esther had not revealed, or she had hidden the fact that she was a Jew, as Mordecai had charged her. She kept her nationality hidden, like her name implies. And we'll see that this actually serves her well as this account unfolds. But also interesting because God is hidden in this book. There's no mention of God at all. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 through 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, in that they are turned unto other gods. God foretold of the day that if you go whoring after other gods, I will hide myself from you. And he's hidden here in this book. And the fact that this book bears the name Esther and not Hadassah 
could be an indication by the meaning of her name that God is going to be hidden. But while God is hidden, hidden, God is not missing. Though Esther was hidden early on, so she would help her people later on. And though God is hidden, He's still here helping His people. Jesus too remained hidden. After His birth, you'll remember, after His birth was celebrated, they had to go into hiding down into Egypt because Herod sought for His life. Jesus shows up briefly on the pages of Scripture at the age of 12 and disappears again. His identity remained hidden. And it wasn't until the age of 30 that He appears publicly at the Jordan River to be baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. And it's interesting during Christ's ministry how many times He would say, don't tell anybody. I just want to say this in closing. There may be times when it seems like God is hidden in your life. Adversity so difficult. Valleys so deep. The fires that we go through. And you may sense that God is not there. But I want you to trust that God is always at work behind the scenes in your life. It's God's providence. He works on your behalf and He does so for your good and for His glory. Let's pray.